the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Jesus' popularity is, is waning by this point in his ministry. It's dangerous for him to travel to Jerusalem, but the time for his death, the cross is not yet. And for the next few chapters, Luke, what he talks about, he's going to talk about a time in Jesus' earthly ministry that the other gospel writers leave out. Some people make the mistake of thinking, well, Luke didn't get his, his material right because he wasn't an eyewitness, so he gets things all out of place. That's an incorrect assumption. So the things here that we study, even though they are covering a time that aren't, isn't covered by the other gospel writers, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the topics are new. Jesus frequently repeated truths, and today we're going to revisit an important one, the topic of prayer, and more specifically, how we should pray. So chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, when he was done praying, that one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, one of the things we've been learning in Luke is that Jesus was just always praying, right? I mean, that's one of the things we've pointed out is that Luke mentions more than anybody else how much Jesus prayed. But what causes this anonymous disciple, because we don't know who he is, to finally ask this question? Perhaps it was seeing all the trouble ahead and the fact that Jesus' focus wasn't changed, that he was unhinged. He wasn't unhinged. He was just moving forward. You know, maybe that was it. Maybe it was seeing that and, and then thinking that he'd seen the same impact in John the Baptist's life through prayer. I don't know. Whatever it was, this disciple knew he didn't have it and he wanted to get it. And thus we actually have here the only thing of the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do, how to pray. And that should tell us how important it is in our everyday lives, if that's the one thing that they ever asked him, to teach him, teach us how to pray like you do, teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples. We need that. Now, Jesus did teach him about prayer before. In fact, this particular lesson on, we call it the Lord's Prayer, on the Sermon of the Mount. That Jesus teaches on prayer the same way twice, with some variation, but the same ideas twice, means that this is important stuff. We need to pay close attention to understanding it and then living it out. So we see here that Jesus, in verse 2, he begins teaching them by saying, when you pray. That is lesson number one is that prayer is a regular necessity. The first lesson isn't if you pray, but when you pray. I don't know about you, but the biggest obstacle to me is not how I pray, but that either I don't pray or that it needs to be a much bigger part of my life. The first lesson is it needs to be a regular part of my life. It's a regular necessity. That means it's vital that I set aside time to pray. Because if I don't, I won't. If I don't set aside time to pray, I won't. Certainly God moves on our heart to pray for things all throughout the day. Prayer is a running conversation with God. But whether or not I sense God moving me, I should be praying regularly. And that requires a commitment to regular prayer, a commitment to a time of prayer. 
for some, that means having a set time of prayer. You're going to pray, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you know, you're going to get up a half hour early and pray or whatever that might be. That can be difficult for, like, for those who have parents with little kids. You know, that's not exactly the easiest thing to set up. Uh, there's no right way to do it. The key is making a plan to ensure it happens. I remember when Beverly had, uh, when Beverly, we both had little ones, but when we had little ones, that, that Bev, she would struggle with that. She'd be like, you know, it's hard, hard to find a devotion time or a set prayer time because, you know, the kids, they're, they interrupt it. You know, it's like if you set aside time, well, that's when they, the baby wakes up. Or you set aside time, that's when they have a crisis. And so she, I don't know if you read an article or, or read a book, but it talked about a, a mom who talked about that. She took the, the times of like diaper changing to be prayer time. She would say, well, every time I got to change a diaper, that's going to be my prayer time. And, and the idea, again, is, is it not everybody can have a set time if your schedule's all over the place in a sense of a specific time every single day. But you can set a specific moment to be a reminder to you. Some people, you know, when, I, when I was working two jobs, it was difficult to get up a half hour early to pray. My prayer time was shower time. That was when I prayed. And, you know, or drive time. Drive time to work became prayer time. Uh, not with my eyes closed, thankfully, but, but it did become prayer time, you know. The idea is, is you need to make a plan to ensure it happens. There's no right time, five in the morning or whatever. There, you need to make a, a plan to ensure it happens. Having done that, and understood that first lesson, that prayer is a regular necessity. Having done that, what does a good prayer time look like? Well, Jesus teaches this. It starts off with worship. Its general format we see here is to start off with worship. And that's the second lesson Jesus is going to teach us, that it has a general format. He says here, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done as in heaven, so in earth. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the general format that Jesus teaches us to pray, and it starts with worship. We call this the Lord's Prayer, or some people call it the Our Father. It really should be called the Disciples' Prayer, since it's not for Him, it's for us. He's teaching disciples how to pray. Certainly, you can look at this prayer and go, I say this prayer all the time. And, and you can say these exact words as a prayer. I encourage people to pray biblical prayers all the time because you're praying in the will of God. But any prayer that's recited as a religious ritual or recited without giving thought to what's being said becomes vain repetition. And that's what Jesus said he does not want us doing. He condemned that kind of prayer. He does not want us doing that. Because each instruction here that he gives to us, each instruction has meaning behind it. And it should be contemplated and personalized in our lives. So as we start here, we see this idea of starting with worship. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We start here and see that prayer is to be directed to our Heavenly Father. It's not that prayer can't be directed to Jesus. He is our Savior after all. But Jesus taught us time and time again to direct our prayers to the Father. And so that is how we should pray. Prayer must begin by recognizing that our part recognizing that I'm part of something bigger than me. There's God, our Father, who deserves all my attention, all the glory, and all my surrender. And then there's the body of Christ, that our part, that it's not just my Father, but our Father. The body of Christ to whom I belong to. 
In other words, I'm not the only one who has needs. We start here by seeing that if we're going to start with worship, it starts with the death to self. It starts with the eradication of selfishness. If we're going to have an effective prayer life, it means selfishness can have no place in that prayer life. That shows that my prayer time should start by moving upward instead of inward. Not with my needs first, but as we said already, with worship. Of course, worship here implies implies we already have a relationship with God, right? Our Father, it implies that you're already born again. That means more than just creator or just God of the universe. It speaks of family. And if you don't know the Lord today, if you're not part of God's family, then fix that. The rest of the sermon will be much more helpful to you. Before we get into this, I realize that there are times when you're hurting so badly that all you, all you feel you can do is to cry out to God for help. I've been there before myself. Jesus isn't forbidding that. What he's saying is that this format is to be our aim. Because even in those moments when I'm crying out to God for help, I must eventually come to a place of worship, right? I mean, you have to eventually come there. That's why he says it, it starts here, because that's the only way a prayer is going to be effective, is you have to get there, even if you're hurting. I love in Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, when Job was hurting, I mean, he's just lost everything. He's lost his kids. He's lost everything that he's owned. Everything's gone. He's suffered immense tragedy. But there, when he hears the news, it says in verse 20, uh, chapter 1, then Job arose and tore his mantle. He shaved his head. So that's his mourning. But then it says, he fell up down upon the ground and he worshiped. He worshiped and he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, talk about somebody who's gone through it. And yet he comes to that place, even though he's hurting, he tears his clothes, you know. He goes into mourning, but he takes the time first and foremost to worship the Lord. What does it mean to worship the Lord in prayer. Well, Jesus explains here two things. I need to recognize where God is, and I need to declare who God is. He starts off by saying, our Father, which are in heaven, which are in heaven. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, it tells us what that means, that God is in heaven. Paul's saying to Timothy, he says that God who only has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. I mean, we sang that song today, that Revelation song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Clothed in rainbows of living color, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him, right? I mean, he deserves all that. He is different than us. He is unique. He is in an unapproachable light, as Paul says. When we talk about the recognition of where God is, the idea is God dwells in perfection, a place of no mistakes, a place of no sin, a place of no failure. Now, does that describe where I dwell? Not at all. (laughs) I dwell in the exact opposite of that. So the recognition of where God dwells is the recognition that I'm not God. I fail, but he doesn't. And that he doesn't have the same limitations I do. So I need to recognize that where I am is different than where he is. But secondly, worship is a declaration of who he is. Jesus says we're to say, hallowed be your name. The word there, hallowed, means to feel reverence for something or to honor something as unique and set apart. Holy is your name. There's no name like your name, God. We sang that song too. There's no one like you, Jesus, right? 
That, that's the idea. There's no one like you. No one compares to you. Holy be your name. That's what's honored, his name. And of course, you remember, you know, our names are not just a name that we identify by and we go, oh, hey, it's Will. No, I have a reputation that comes with that name. Some of you might walk around going, oh, look, it's Will, because that's maybe my reputation. I hope it's not. I hope you look at me and you see something better than that. But certainly when we declare the Lord's name, we're thinking of something far above anything, any reputation we could have, right? I mean, he has a name that's holy. It's unique. You know, God's character, God's reputation is unrivaled. We could easily spend hours declaring that God is different, that God is high above, and all the character and, and all of what his name means to us, what he's like. Because God is so much greater than anything we could praise, right? He stands apart. I do need to point out, if you're going to recognize where God is and what that means and declare who he is, that means you have to know what God is like, don't you? Which is why learning our Bible is so important. It's why we put such emphasis on studying the scriptures, because we won't know what God's like. We won't know where he is. We won't know how different he is than us if we don't know the word. You need to understand something, that starting with worship is something God deserves. You know, we don't have song time here because, well, you know, we have people that come in late and we just don't want to embarrass them. We lost the light. You know, we don't have song time to you know, prepare our hearts for the message. I hear people say that sometimes. And while that may be a side effect of worship, that's not why we worship. We worship because he deserves to be told how awesome he is. His character deserves to be praised and declared. Our thankfulness, he deserves that. He deserves that recognition. He deserves us to be worshiping him. It's not for me, it's for him. But it does have that side effect of putting our heart in the right place, doesn't it? When we remember who he is and we see who he is. You know, when we recognize where God is, we humble ourselves, we submit to him. When we declare how awesome God is, it stirs up faith in our hearts. And that's why the two phases come next. We start with worship and then we move to submission and then we move to requests. It's because then we're, our hearts are in a place where we can do it correctly, not to consume it upon our own lusts. The first phase here we see in the rest of verse two, it's that submission. So after we have worshiped, the next part of the general format of prayer is submission. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Thy kingdom, thy will, is as opposed to my kingdom and my will, or someone else's kingdom or someone else's will. I don't pray for some leader's will to be done. I don't pray for, you know, our government's will to be done. I don't, I don't pray for our country's will to be done. I pray for God's kingdom to come. I pray for his desires to be done on earth as in heaven. Now, when we talk about his kingdom, what kingdom is that? Well, that's the thousand-year reign, which begins when Jesus returns to earth to deal with mankind's rebellion against God. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, it, it talks about that's the goal of the kingdom. 2.14, it says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Don't you long for that day? I long for that day. I don't long for the day when the United States reputation is everywhere and everybody loves us. I long for the day when righteousness covers the earth like water covers the sea. And while there's nothing wrong with asking God to bless my life here, nor bless my country, I, I pray that. You know, to bless our, our president, to bless our, our leaders, I pray that too. While there's nothing wrong with that, that desire must be secondary to, to see Christ's kingdom on earth. Any desire I have for life here to go well or my country to go well needs to be secondary to seeing Christ's kingdom on earth because that's the only solution to the mess our world is in. 
That's it. And until then, no matter how good a president we have or how good our country's doing, evil and sickness and disaster and hardship will increase. By declaring this, not my kingdom or my will be done, but your kingdom come, your will be done. By declaring that, I'm submitting to what God says is best for me. I'm submitting to that. Don't you want to see our world fixed? I do. That's the only way is Christ's return. It's interesting. Earth is the only place where rebels exist. Have you ever thought about that? It's the only place where rebels exist. Everything else in the universe goes exactly as God wants it to go. Everything in heaven goes exactly as God wants it to go. And so while we submit to God by praying for his kingdom to come fix that, we also submit to him on a more personal level. When we're praying that, we're saying, I choose my life, Lord, to be a reflection of how things work in heaven. I want to be like all the angels. I want to be like all those who follow your orders. I want to be like creation that does whatever you tell it to do that's never in rebellion to you. Why is submission so important before we bring our requests to God? Why is that general format of starting with worship, then moving to submission, and then moving to our requests? Why is it so important? Well, James chapter 4, verse 3 explains to us. He tells us one of the reasons we don't see answered prayer is he says, you ask and receive not, James 4, 3, because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. So it's important for us to come with submission first to say, Lord, I submit my will to you. I want what you want. I want your will to be done in my life, not my will. Well, then that kind of starts getting all the selfish requests out of the way, doesn't it? It gets my will out of the way so that I don't do what James says here, where I ask amiss to consume it upon my own lusts. See, once I've submitted myself to God's rule, you know, it, it changes, you know, how I think. It changes the way I look at my needs and my wants. Well, we submit to God simply because he deserves it as our creator and savior. Again, that also has a side effect. It has the side effect of success in prayer. In John chapter 15, verse seven, Jesus gave a promise. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. We like the part where it says you can ask whatever you want and it shall be done for you. We have whole churches that base their theology upon that part of that verse. And they say, you can, you can just demand God, do whatever you want, ask, and he has to do it. But we forget the first part. We have to abide in him. Our words, his words have to abide in us. So that idea of submission has the blessing that comes that he'll, we'll be successful in our prayer life. In 1 John chapter 5, he says something very similar. He says, and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, which we do, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. So when we get our will in line with his will, when we get his word into our hearts, we're praying scripturally, we can know God's going to answer those prayers. That general format, having worshiped, and now submitted ourselves, we move to the final part, our requests. Now, this is the largest section, and this is usually probably where we spend the most time in prayer. He says here, beginning in verse 3, the first petition or request is for our physical needs. He says, give us day by day our daily bread. Real quick, we need to look at something here because all of these prayers kind of take something, these requests take something into account. It's, and it takes into account the idea that we are trusting God for these things, right? That we are believing him. We're trusting him. 
And faith is another aspect of successful prayers. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Again, the beautiful part about starting with worship and then moving to surrender is that worshiping God reminds us how powerful, how loving, and how good God is. And that has the side effect of increasing our faith. So we can make bold requests like Jesus tells us to here. To say, give us day by day our daily bread. These requests, like I said, they, can, they start with physical needs here. There's four specific needs that Jesus addresses here. We have our physical needs, then our spiritual needs, then we, our intercession for others, and then protection from the evil one. We start here with physical needs, and he says, give us day by day our daily bread, or the food needed for this coming day. Here we recognize that the Lord is our source of physical sustenance. Now, listen, I don't know your financial status, whether you live day to day or or paycheck to paycheck or you have a huge savings. All of us must ask God to provide for our daily physical needs, all of us. Because if you and I ignore such prayers, we become confident in our current financial status or our current health status instead of the Lord. And when we come into a trial then, we panic at the change in the status quo instead of looking to our Father as our source. So we need to do that whatever your situation is. If things are going great, you need to ask God to take care of you day to day. If things aren't going great, you need to ask God to take care of you day to day. It's funny how we get sometimes when things are better. We stop trusting God for our finances day to day. We start trusting, you know, what the app tells us, how much money's in the account. We start trusting the fact that we've got that regular income. And then all of a sudden, the Lord allows a curveball into our life and we panic instead of just going back to the foot of the cross and saying, Lord, I seek you for my needs every day. Now there's a greater need. And so I'm asking that you provide for it just like you provided for it every single day. Doesn't that sound better than hitting panic mode every time something weird comes around? Give us this day or day to day our daily bread. Mark chapter four, verses 18 and 19. Jesus, he said, And these are they which were sown among thorns, such as hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Riches only tells you one truth. It only says one thing that's true. Goodbye. That's the only true thing it says. That's the only thing. You may say money talks. It does. It says goodbye. And it's the only true thing it says. Everything else is deceptive. Because our bank account might say, I mean, how many of you ever had a situation where you, you thought everything was fine and then you, you ran into a crisis that you didn't, have, you didn't have the savings for it? I think we've all got situations like that where something came down the pike that was unexpected and what we had wasn't going to cover it. Riches are deceitful. And it says that through that, it chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful in our lives. I don't want that to happen to me. In 1 Timothy six seventeen, Paul told Timothy, young pastor, he said, charge those that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's not that we can't be rich or it's not that we can't enjoy the things God gives to us. We just need to remember that they're uncertain. We can't trust in those things. We need to trust in the living God who is our source at all times. So we need to lift up our physical needs to the Lord, whether they're financial, whether they're health-wise. We need to always ask him day to day to take care of our physical needs. Next, we need to pray for our spiritual needs. He says, and forgive us our sins, verse 4 of Luke 11. Forgive us our sins, for we forgive also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. 
There is a very popular teaching today that we don't need to ask God to forgive our sins. Um, for example, if you drive down the I-4, you'll see a big sign by Longwood that says, God is not angry. That comes from a, a, a church that teaches that doctrine, that we don't need to pray. In fact, it's sin to pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins because all your sins, they're already forgiven when you come to Jesus. I would like to say to those individuals, someone should have told Jesus that because he taught us to pray this way. He taught us, he, he know, it's not like the Lord's like, yeah, I know I taught you how to pray this way, but actually you don't need to do that now because that old cross thing, you know, we didn't understand how it all works, so I was a little mistaken here. No, the Lord understands how prayer works. He understands how he was going to the cross. God, the Bible says, is angry every day at sin. He's angry every day. He hates it. That's a false doctrine. So don't listen to anybody that says, well, you don't need to pray and ask God to forgive your sins. That's so condemning. That's so wrong. It's not even biblical because you're already justified. I want to read to you from what J.C. Ryle said. He said this. He said, The justification of every believer, no doubt, is, is a finished and perfect work. The moment a man believes in Christ, he cannot be more justified if he were to live to the age of Methuselah. But all of this is no reason why he should not daily confess his sins and daily seek fresh application of Christ's blood to his conscience. The words of our Lord in another place teach us much on this. For John 13 says, He that is washed needs not save to wash but his feet. Remember when Jesus came to Peter and he was going to wash his feet? And he said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord said, Listen, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part in me. And Peter said, Well, then, Lord, give me a whole bath, you know? You got to love Peter. He's one extreme or the other, right? And the Lord explained to me, he goes, they that have already had a bath don't need another one. They just need their feet washed. Listen, if you're in Christ, you've had the bath, you've been justified, and you'll never be more justified by anything you can do. But our feet get dirty. We go throughout this world, we pick up dirt and grime. We don't repent and confess our sins to God to stay saved or to make us more right with God. We do so because any meaningful relationship requires such behavior relationship would say, God, I'm sorry. You, you died for me. You've justified me. You've washed me. You've cleansed me. And that's how I acted today. Lord, I want to make things right with you right now. I was wrong to do those things. And I don't want to do those things anymore. So I repent. And I confess those things as wrong and vile and wicked. And I want to please you with my life. Will you wash me anew? Will you clean the dirt and the grime off my feet again? And then would you fill me with your spirit so I can live out my commitment to you? This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.